The anarchy, which an emperor was needed to heal, was at its worst in Italy, desolated by the feuds of a crowd of petty princes. A succession of infamous popes, raised by means yet more infamous, the lovers and sons of Theodora and Marozia, had disgraced the chair of the apostle, and though Rome herself might be lost to decency, Western Christendom was roused to anger and alarm. Men had not yet learned to satisfy their consciences by separating the person from the office. The rule of Ulbrich had been succeeded by the wildest confusion, and demands were raised for the renewal of that imperial authority which all admitted in theory, and which nothing but the resolute opposition of Ulbrich himself had prevented Otto from claiming in 951. From the Byzantine Empire, whither Italy was more than once tempted to turn, nothing could be hoped. Its dangers from foreign enemies were aggravated by the plots of the court and the seditions of the capital. It was becoming more and more alienated from the West by the Photian schism than the question regarding the procession of the Holy Ghost, which that quarrel had started. Germany was extending and consolidating herself, had escaped domestic perils, and might think of reviving ancient claims. No one could be more willing to revive them than Otto the Great. His ardent spirit, after waging a bold and successful struggle against the turbulent magnates of his German realm, had engaged him in wars with the surrounding nations, and was now captivated by the vision of a wider sway and a loftier world-embracing dignity. Nor was the prospect which the papal offer opened up less welcome to his people. Aachen, their capital, was the ancestral home of the House of Pippin. Their sovereign, although himself a Saxon by race, titled himself King of the Franks, in opposition to the Frankish rulers of the Western Branch, whose Teutonic character was disappearing among the Romans of Gaul. They held themselves in every way the true representatives of the Carolingian power, and accounted the period since Arnulf's death nothing but an interregnum which had suspended but not impaired their rights over Rome. For so long, says a writer of the time, as there remain kings of the Franks, so long will the dignity of the Roman Empire not wholly perish, seeing that it will abide in its kings. The recovery of Italy was therefore to German eyes a righteous as well as a glorious design. Approved by the Teutonic Church, which had lately been negotiating with Rome on the subject of missions to the heathen, embraced by the people who saw in it an accession of strength to their young kingdom. Everything smiled on Otto's enterprise, and the connection which was destined to bring so much strife and woe to Germany and to Italy was welcomed by the wisest of both countries as the beginning of a better era. Whatever were Otto's own feelings, whether or not he felt that he was sacrificing, as modern writers have thought that he did sacrifice, the greatness of his German kingdom to the lust of universal dominion, he showed no hesitation in his acts. Descending from the Alps with an overpowering force, he was acknowledged as King of Italy at Pavia and having first taken an oath to protect the Holy See and respect the liberties of the city, advanced to Rome, 
There, with Adelheid, his queen, he was crowned by John the Twelfth on the day of the purification, the 2nd of February, A.D. 962. The details of his election and coronation are unfortunately still more scanty than in the case of his great predecessor. Most of our authorities represent the act as of the Pope's favour. Yet it is plain that the consent of the people was still thought an essential part of the ceremony, and that Otto rested, after all, on his host of conquering Saxons. Be this as it may, there was neither question raised nor opposition made in Rome. The usual courtesies and promises were exchanged between emperor and pope, the latter owning himself a subject, and the citizens swore for the future to elect no pontiff without Otto's consent.' 